Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Frank Gomez, and this is All Things STEM. Today, my guest is Dr. Craig Clemens, professor in the Department of Meteorology and Climate Science and director of the Fire Weather Research Laboratory at San Jose State University. Dr. Clemens conducts research on fire behavior and how weather leads to extreme fire danger. His research is important to California, given its past history of wildfires that have impacted millions of residents. Today, we will discuss his research, his findings, and the impacts he hopes his work will have in the state. Craig, welcome. Nice to see you. You too. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show and, you know, like to chat a little bit about your very interesting work in uh, fire science. And mind you, I don't know much about fire science other than uh, certainly it uh, can burn you. I'd like to first start off with how did your journey start off and how did you become interested in fire science? Well, it was actually by accident. I was doing a PhD on a topic not super related to wildfire by any means, looking at ozone in Yosemite National Park and understanding the mountain meteorology. And so that project was mostly a modeling project. And I was paid as a grad student at the University of Houston to build a facility, a research tower. And we built this tall tower and they ended up doing a prescribed fire in the same prairie that we just had put that tower. And so that all the instrumentation I spent a year building and putting on that tower went through a fire. And I was so interested in it. And I realized that, wow, nobody had done this before, had these what we call in situ instruments in the plume. I presented at a conference, people really excited about it. I changed my PhD topic halfway through and did another experiment. And that's how I got into it. So did this work somehow stimulate others to get into this field? Was it this burgeoning effect of, and now there's more people in it now? I think it was actually just the timing. We collected meteorological data as a fire went through a tower. And I had colleagues that said, hey, nobody's ever really done that. We've never had this type of data. So we don't really know what's inside right above the fire, what's inside the plume. A few experiments have occurred previously, but not really well documented. So that became a topic. I actually, I did a Google search and did a lit review and said, wow, nobody has these data. So once that data got published as part of my PhD and in peer-reviewed literature, that became a benchmark for fire model testing. Because for the first time, we had turbulence and temperature and winds within the fire environment fairly well documented. And if I look back at it now, it was poorly documented, but it was like the first time we had those data. So that launched a number of different experiments, not only by myself, but from other colleagues and other groups started doing that. And it was called the fire flux experiment. And people even in literature say a fire flux like experiment. So uh, it did catch on. But th those data are really important for generating and developing the next generation fire behavior models. That's exciting. Being somewhere in it from the beginning must you know, feel great. So let's move ahead uh, X amount of years. I'll, you can put in what that X actually looks like. Tell me a little bit now about the laboratory you manage at uh, San Jose State. And uh, is it really the only mobile fire weather lab in the nation? Yeah, so what we have that's quite unique is a, a suite of instruments that are mounted on a, a pickup truck. And 
we take it to wildfires. And the reason why it's really the only fire weather lab is because it's the only set of instruments dedicated to wildfire science in this form. Like nobody takes instruments to wildfires like we have. And that's been kind of our main research uh, goal is to collecting observations on active wildfires. But this system actually is part of a joint university system called the CSU MAPS or the Cal State University Mobile Atmospheric Profiling System that is a San Jose State and San Francisco State University project. And it was a NSF-funded MRI grant that my colleague at San Francisco State, Andrew Oliphant, and I put in, and we got it. And so he does more fixed instruments for field sites, and then I do more of the mobile stuff with the wildfire. But we have a a trailer with a 32-meter tower, meteorological tower mounted, so we can take that to different projects. And so it's quite a unique uh, system. To get back to your question, yes, that system being the only fire weather dedicated mobile profiling system. Yeah, it's the only one in the U.S. So tell us a little bit about how some of these uh, instruments, these unique instruments are used and how they're utilized in your research. Chances are the general public doesn't know what it is you actually do there and, you know, how how important it is to, to a lot of people who live in those wildfire areas that they reside in? Yeah, so the the core instruments that we use, and we have two trucks now. One, it was like, let's say truck number one was the first truck we got in 2012, and it's mounted with what's called a Doppler LiDAR. So it's like a radar, but it uses an infrared laser beam. And that laser beam is sensitive to particles or aerosol particles in the atmosphere. So if, there's, if it's dusty, it really can see pretty deep into the atmosphere. But if it's smoky, it sees really well. So we can actually take that instrument. It's mounted on an airbag frame. So there's airbags keeping the, the bounce of the truck and the shock absorbing of the, uh, the road to keep that instrument a little bit more protected. So we take it down dirt roads, up four-wheel drive trails, and we can position the truck near the fire and we can scan the fire plume. And what we're doing is we're taking a vertical slice of the atmosphere and we're pointing the laser at the plume and we're scanning across the fire front as well. So we're trying to measure the winds because it's a Doppler LiDAR can measure the velocity along the laser beam. And so we can get the wind speed and wind direction along the fire, around the fire, and through the plume. And so that's really important because we really need to understand for modeling and particularly smoke and air quality forecasting, like how fast the smoke's moving, where it's going. And with the LIDAR, we can do that. Another tool that we have is a Doppler radar. So it's actually a radar and it's a new radar that we got funded by NSF as well. And it's mounted on another truck And it's the only mobile radar in the Western U.S. And it's a specific radar called KA band. So it uses millimeter wave uh, wavelength and it's what we call a cloud radar. And so we it's really sensitive to ash in fire plumes and it can detect precipitation and large cloud droplets. So it's quite a unique tool. And actually, it's better than the LIDAR in terms of it scans much faster. It can scan from farther away and we can do volumetric scans pretty quickly of the entire fire plume. Pretty exciting tools. These tools are allowing us to really hear into the heart of these wildfires that are burning every summer in California. Putting on my uh, my science hat here, you know, as a chemist with a lidar and the uh, the Ka band, there's probably a number of variables that go in to actually getting you know very good results or excellent results. So, what might be uh, some of those other components that might 
preclude you from getting very accurate results? Or really, how accurate is this? Is it something that is you know, 90x percent accurate in giving you excellent data? I mean, I, I kind of envision, and this maybe it's a bad analogy here, of that movie where they're tornado chasers, okay? And they're, you know, putting in, you know, trying to put this instrument inside of our tornado and, you know, anything and everything can go wrong. So I'm kind of looking at it in your work too. Is it something where you have to be very careful on how you actually get these results or is it not as difficult to get accurate readings as say they did? The systems, the the instruments themselves are very accurate in terms of what they're giving you. And so the LIDARs and radars are a function of their sensitivity. So if it's a really sensitive instrument, you can be far away. You don't need a lot of uh, or scatterers or things to bounce the, uh, either the laser or the radio wavelength or microwave off of. So it's always a function of its environment. But if you say, let's say you had the perfect case where you're at the perfect distance, a perfect range for the radar, you know, the enough smoke in the atmosphere or, or, or debris, actually what the radar sees is debris and, and, and larger ash. If there's the perfect amount of those and everything's working fine, the radar is going to give you accurate results. Now, the issue is determining and interpreting those results and understanding whether or not are you seeing larger particles or are you seeing more particles in the volume. And so there's a number of different products that the radar can generate that provides us some insight into particle size uh, and shape. And so that's where the radar really is quite unique. But I would say that the most difficult, the most challenging thing about these type of what we call remote sensing observations is getting the instruments in the right place. And in our case, in a very safe location to deploy and then make the scans that we need. How far might you be in order to optimize the results that you get? How far might you be from a typical fire to try to get these best results? Typically, with the LIDAR, so we had the LIDAR for a few years, and we sampled about 30 wildfires in California with just the LIDAR. And that required us to be within five kilometers of the fire, of the plume. Ideally, we'd want to be within a kilometer or two. That's kind of the sweet spot for the LIDAR. But getting that close can be challenging. And, you know, if it, it's line of sight. So if there's a bunch of trees around, then we can't actually see the plume. If you can't see it, then the LIDAR can't see it. So it's, it's hard to, to really get a good location that's got a good line of sight for, for the instrument to really work well. With the radar, we can be farther back. And so 10 kilometers is no problem for the radar. Ideally, three to four or five kilometers is, is the sweet spot for that system, just because it's higher resolution and just the way it works. But so that's really, we want to be within two to three kilometers, I think, of, a, of the fire plume. Now, you could be two to three kilometers behind the fire as it's burning away from you, and that's completely safe. Or you could be two to three kilometers ahead of the fire, downwind of it, and that's not as safe. And so we have to figure out where we're going to go and what we want to measure, because sometimes you want to be downwind of the plume because you want to have the ash falling out, and we want to understand what the plume it consists of debris, ash, leaves, needles, bark chunks, or what have you. So there's a lot of different ways to, to scan the fires uh, with these instruments. And because we're fireline qualified, we take all these things into consideration. Where can we be safely? Where are the fire is going to be in a few, you know, in the next hour or so? Can't, do we have an escape route? 
can we, uh, you know, what's we all try to optimize everything so we can get the best data and be in the safest situation. And another critical factor is we never want to be in the way of first responders and fire suppression activities. So these trucks have to be pretty nimble. They're four-wheel drive. They're lifted. And so they're actually probably the coolest research trucks in the nation. I mean, they've got, you know, they're off equipped with off-road equipment. And we want to be off the main roads, but ideally we don't want to be really far in the backcountry because it's slower to get through those kinds of trails or roads. So we want to be off the main road and in a very safe location. But if we do see active fire suppression, we generally turn around and try to get, find another location because the last thing we want to be is a hindrance to uh, first responders. You mentioned wind, and of course, with that comes weather. Certainly, we've all listened to TV or the radio or you know, just on the internet where they mention weather conditions and how it'll impact fire. Can you tell us a little bit about how weather affects wildfires? Uh, certainly, when we you know, turn on the TV and you know, I live you know, in Orange County, and we've had a number of fires down here too, that they say, oh, the wind's blowing from the Northeast or you know, whatever condition. You know, can you provide a little bit of background as to that? Yeah, so weather is a major component to what we call the fire behavior triangle. So think of a triangle and there's three components for fire behavior. One is fuels, what's burning, the condition of the fuels, structure of those fuels, trees, shrubs, grasses. The other is topography, is it steep topography, a canyon, flat terrain. And then the third one is the weather and the weather is the most variable, right? So if the weather changes, as if there's a fire burning, the weather changes dramatically, whether it's a wind shift and the direction of the wind shifts or the wind speed picks up, the fire is going to respond instantaneously. Uh, another thing that the weather does is, well, first off, the, the wind drives where the fire is going to go. It pushes the flame front and it then can push the embers, right? So if the embers get up into the smoke column and then they get what we call vected or blown out of the column by the wind. And depending on how high they go and how fast the wind is above the ground, those uh, embers or firebrands is another term that we use, can start new fires or spot fires. And it could be miles, multiple miles downwind of the actual fire front. So that's the problem that we have with these big wind events. For example, Santa Ana's or north wind events in Northern California or Diablo winds in the Bay Area. These are what are called offshore downslope wind events, meaning they come from offshore, so the air mass is drier than if it was coming onshore from the ocean like a sea breeze. And so that drier air can condition the fuels ahead of time. So it makes them drier because it's dry air impacting onto the grasses. In addition, that real strong wind speed and turbulence generated with the high winds can really cause erratic fire behavior where the fire could be going different directions or you get lots of embers being spread downwind. And we've seen that in a lot of cases like the Tubbs fire of 2017, the Camp fire 2018, where it was mostly the embers that were catching homes on fire. It wasn't actual flame impingement on houses. It was the embers that would land on people's property or on their roofs, and that would catch the house on fire. And then those fires would burn house to house. So it's a complicated situation, but weather really drives it. If you don't have the wind, you can still have a big fire because then you have what we call a plume-dominated fire, where there's so much heat release that the fire is creating its own weather, and it's causing the winds to be uh, from the opposite direction than ambient, let's say. So if the winds are out of the north and they're really gentle, you can have winds that are four times, five times greater than 
what's the environmental condition around the fire front in the opposite direction. And so fires can actually generate their own wind. We call that fire-induced wind. And it can generate their own weather. With the heat release, you can get moisture uh, entrainment or like the plume sucks in moisture from the atmosphere. Also combustion causes some moisture release. And so that can help form what we call pyrocumulus clouds. And if they get really deep and because there's so much heat release, the plume can go so far into the atmosphere and it's super cold at those higher altitudes that you can get ice forming and we then can form a a thunderstorm and get lots of big raindrops. You can create your own weather. And so then the key thing is seeing clouds like pyrocumulus clouds or pyrocumulonimbus clouds, which is a fire generated thunderstorm. Has your team ever predicted a wildfire based solely on weather conditions then? Well, it's hard to predict a wildfire because of wildfires generally, you have to have an ignition. If you don't have an ignition, then you won't have the fire. And it turns out that eight out of 10 fires are human caused. Whether that's some sort of mechanical failure on a utility line or a campfire or some, uh, something off the side of the road, someone gets a flat tire and their rim creates some sparks and catches the grass on fire, which is a fairly common. A lot of fires start along roadways, actually. So to predict a fire is, is pretty challenging, but to predict where it goes is challenging itself, but that's kind of what we would do. And that's what we, we generally do in terms of our operational aspects at San Jose State. We have an operational model, the forecasting system that we can then forecast where fires are going to go. But we do forecast conditions that could be very high risk. So we do forecast fire danger. And for example, I remember on November 7th, 2018, the day before the campfire erupted, I was telling uh, some media that tomorrow there will be a fire. It's going to be a very dangerous day. I didn't know where it was going to be. I didn't know that it was going to be the campfire and, you know, it was going to be the most devastating fire in California history. But I figured, gosh, it's November. The fuel moistures are super critically low. We haven't had any rain. It's going to be hot, you know, warm and dry for November and we're going to have a big offshore wind event. So hopefully we won't have a fire, but tomorrow, if there is one, it's going to be big. So that's, that's kind of how we look at fire weather what role it plays on on fires. But it's hard to predict if there's going to be a fire anywhere because we have to have an ignition. It sounds like wildfires are systemic to the state of California. And um, certainly it kind of begs the question about issues of climate change. So how do you integrate or incorporate those thoughts uh, into your research? And um, what kind of, you know, kind of the, the you know, cart before the horse, you know, what comes first? Does climate change impact wildfires or, or vice versa? Well, they do impact each other, but I would say that climate change is really impacting the fire environment. You know, every, every summer there's lots of fires and everybody says, oh, it's climate change. Well, partly the fires are, we know that fires are getting worse or more intense because of climate change. And the link is that climate change is causing drier atmospheric conditions. It's causing drought. Droughts have been linked to climate change, anthropogenic climate change. And so with those conditions, those affect the fuels. If we get back to our fire behavior triangle, where we're thinking weather, fuels, and topography, well, the fuels are getting drier. And we're seeing very record low fuel moistures this spring already because of the drought. 
And so that's the linkage with climate change. In addition, can't just say, oh, all fires are getting bad because of climate change. It's also forest policy, fort land management policy. We've had 100 years of fire suppression in, in the U.S. forests. What that's done is it's caused an accumulation of fuels. And so with, if we don't have a lot of fuels, we won't have a lot of fires or big fires. So we have this problem with fuel accumulation. And then we have a problem with climate change that's causing those fuels to dry out further. So if we can remove the fuels, and then we can probably sustain the impacts of climate change better. But yeah, it's a combination of management practices, lack of prescribed fire in, in our forests, accumulation of fuels, and then drying of the fuels due to warmer and drying conditions due to climate change. You know, the CSU is you know, quite involved in experiential training of our students. And yeah, certainly this work that you do bodes well for having students involved. So can you give an example of two on how you have involved students in your, uh, your wildfire uh, work in the past? Yeah, so students make up the majority of my research team. We recruit graduate students from around the country to come to San Jose State. And you know, our research is funded by uh, federal research grants, so that pays the student salary and tuition. And so they come and they work as graduate research assistantships. We also have undergraduate students that work with us. And what we do is we actually have all students go through firefighter training every year. And so if it's a new student, we have the funds to buy new PPE or personal protective equipment, helmets, gloves, hats, and all that, boots. And um, so everyone's equipped, everybody's trained, and so they can deploy to wildfires with the team. Another aspect, and that's really exciting. Students just love that. Of course, as a faculty member and, and team leader or research leader, like, mm, are we really going to go to that fire? Sometimes you have to say, oh, we're not going to deploy that fire. It's just probably not the best. A, we're, it doesn't look like we're going to get the best data set. It's not involved with anybody's thesis, but it's also, it might be too dangerous. So we usually are, I'm very conservative. So it's very like, okay, we can go there collected data, but we've had a lot of student deployments on wildfires and it's a great experience for them because uh, it's somewhat empowering. They get to get out into this environment. The public can't even be there, but here we have research students out there making measurements of the atmosphere, understanding the fire behavior. And, uh, you know, it gives them some, uh, some really unique experiences. And it also is really fun for me to be in that environment with students. Another aspect is we also manage a network of weather stations out in the remote mountains and such. And so those have to be serviced every year. They have to be maintained. And we also have a fuel sampling program where we go out and we clip the, the brush to get the live fuel moisture content. And we do that every two weeks. So basically, a grad student will just manage that whole schedule. And we have students that are all set up to either drive the university vehicles or take their personal cars and get gas mileage reimbursement. And so everybody deploys to these sites, clips their fuels. It's a nice hike out in the mountains and the shrubs and brings those samples back. So there's more hands-on there. They're actually seeing how the fuels are changing throughout the season. And it's a really good perspective. It's not, you know, the, obviously the real... Uh, you know, exciting part is getting out on a fire. And that's kind of how we attract a lot of graduate students from out of state. But that's a small part of the research program. There's just a lot of data analysis. And um, so that they get 
data analysis, hands-on field work, and then also deployment and, and fireline training. So some of them, a lot of students go into this work after they're done because there's actually a need for wildfire meteorologists, you know, the utilities. That's what they're hiring now because that's their biggest threat. Sounds like a great opportunity for students uh, and certainly experiential opportunities for them, you know, to really work out in the rural areas, as you say, hiking and the mountains, and certainly for that outdoorsy type of student. You work on fires is important to California and the CSU. As you're aware, San Jose State conducted a cluster hire, which led to a deeper focus on wildfire science. How has this strengthened the teaching and research program in wildfire science at your school? And how has it been helping to educate the next generation of fire scientists at your institution? In 2020, we were fortunate enough to have a cluster hire in wildfire science where we hired five tenure line faculty positions across campus. And this was kind of building out of the fire weather research lab, but you know, we have to focus more on just fire weather. So we hired uh, a faculty person in environmental studies who does uh, social science of wildfire. She's a social scientist and does wildfire policy and management. And we have a mechanical engineering faculty who looks at fire dynamics, fire behavior, and modeling. And in meteorology, we hired two faculty, one in wildfire remote sensing who looks at satellites and drones and using new techniques to determine fire behavior properties from aircraft and drones. And then we have a faculty who does atmospheric modeling and has brought their model to San Jose State. Now we are operating the most advanced fire prediction system in the U.S. And then lastly, we have a fire ecologist in the Department of Biology. So we have faculty across campus in different colleges, in different departments. And then with these five new hires, we've attracted faculty already on campus that work in wildfire and risk. So because of the new hires, we've, uh, I've been able to meet other faculty that do work that aligns well with what we're doing in, in the center. And so we formed the new Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center at San Jose State. So we're currently seeking funds to support the center, and uh, it's quite exciting. But one of the cool things that has really come out of that within the first semester of everyone arriving, which was last fall, 2020, we implemented or, or got the proposal for a new minor in wildfire science. So students are going to be able to take a new class in fire ecology, wildfire management course, uh, fire weather, and then we have a general education course that I developed a few years ago called Wildfire in the Earth System, and it's uh, what we call Area R. It's uh, a GE, upper division GE class, which is quite popular, and it's a great class because it's students that are from outside the sciences that get an opportunity to learn about fire behavior, fire weather, fire policy, and, and what's going on around them in, in California. So that class has uh, really kind of helped us build a curriculum. For, for wildfire science. And so the goal is to start training the next generation wildfire scientists that can go work at different agencies or for private firms to really combat this problem that the Western U.S., not only California, is, is in the midst of. Yeah, so I can see this will greatly impact not only the state of California, but also help in terms of our general understanding of wildfires uh, as a whole. I recently read that the governor declared a drought emergency for Sonoma and Mendocino counties uh, due to the, uh, the record dry conditions in California. So, you know, with that being said, what do you foresee for the upcoming summer wildfire season, Craig? Well, 
it's going to be probably a very dire season. And the reason that is, is because of the drought. As I mentioned earlier, we do these fuel samples where every two weeks on the 1st and the 15th of every month, we go to three sites in the Santa Cruz Mountains where we sample the fuel moisture content of the living shrubs. And and these data are collected by other agencies all around the state, all around the Western U.S. And what we found in April 1st was that the fuel moisture content was the lowest we've ever had for April 1st. We had no new growth. Usually April 1st is the time of, of year that the plant is sprouting out. It's got lots of new growth. Just like in your garden, you know, April, we're getting our gardens together and the trees are blossoming. But a lot of these shrubs were not growing. They didn't have their new growth. And it was delayed a couple of weeks because now we've got some new growth on these plants that we've been sampling. So what that indicates is that the plants are stressed. Their fuel moistures are lower. So we're actually going to go into fire season with lower fuel moisture content than we otherwise would. Typically, our lowest fuel moisture contents occur in the summer because these plants kind of become dormant because Mediterranean climate, we don't get a lot of rain. We get very little rain in the summer. So these plants get all their moisture, soil moisture in the winter. They use that soil moisture in the spring as they generate their new growth. And then as summer goes through, they flower and then they become dormant. And that's when their fuel moistures really drop off and they become much more flammable. This year, we can anticipate that the fuel moistures the plants will be more flammable earlier in summer than on regular uh, non-drought years. So it's definitely going to have a large impact on our fire season. Well, that's unfortunate. You know, hopefully it'll be people like you that can help in terms of the, uh, the wildfires that will certainly sprout up probably more so than in preceding years. Kind of a fun question for you now. If you could turn back the clock and talk to your 18-year-old self, which is uh, only about uh, 10 years ago, okay, what would, you, what, what, what would you tell him? It's much longer than 10 years ago. Wow, that's a good question. I would uh, tell myself at 18 that, yeah, you're going to actually become a scientist, not a rock star. So get ready. <laughs> well, thank you, Craig. And uh, uh, I guess you chose, uh, I don't know how uh, good you do in terms of uh, a musician, how well you are in terms of that, but certainly you've done a great job in terms of uh, the, the wildfire side of things. So, you know, once again, thanks for appearing today and uh, good luck uh, going forward. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was fun, fun discussion and chat. Well, that's all for today's episode of All Things STEM. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Dr. Craig Clements for speaking with me today and to all of you for being here. Join us again next time. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you may listen to your podcast. Until next time.